So um, at our interfaith service um, this year, it was organized last Sunday. It was or- organized by Rabbi Josh. And uh, he opened with the morning blessings, which is a Jewish tradition to start the day. It's a, it's a, it's a great tradition. And uh, neuroscientifically savvy, it turns out. And um, uh, he, it reminded me that of every time I've been to a certain kind of African-American church where they have testimony time before the pastor comes out, you know, pastor's in his study, he's kind of meeting with the important guests or whatever, and then the testimony's time starts, and people are just standing, popping up and saying things like, I just thank, I just thank God today that he woke me up, and I thank God that he gave me the health to make it to church today and get a Amen. Just simple reflections of the goodness of God to start the morning worship on Sunday. And I thought, oh, we should try that. So I'm going to do a call out morning blessing and you just echo it, okay? So here we go. We are blessed to be alive today. We are blessed to be together. We are blessed to give and to receive. And this is the theological one. We are blessed to participate in the life of the blessed God. We are blessed to participate in the life of the blessed God. Amen. Don't you feel better? You know, that, you, that, that's, that's good. You didn't sound like a bunch of Swedes in the middle of the long Swedish winter even. I'm very impressed with you, church. That's excellent. Uh, did anyone, truth be told, even though it was read by such a charming reader... Did anyone cringe at the reading this morning? Anyone cringe a little bit at parts of that reading this morning? You, you probably weren't listening if you didn't cringe a little bit if you're like a modern person. So it's, it's a reading that is filled with a lot of comfort, um, but there's, at the end there's kind of an offensive part. And uh, often, this is a reading that people will uh, do at funerals, and sometimes it'd be like, could you leave off that last part of the reading and just have the, the nice part? So I'm going to read it again this time. Listen um, for that, that possible ouch for the modern sensibility. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Jesus speaking, um, perhaps it's obvious. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So the elephant in the cozy living room of this uh, text is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. So there are, you know, classically a couple of different ways to read, um, read this text. One you might call the triumphalist reading. And the other is the pluralist. I'll define that the triumphalist is pretty simple. It's kind of like my God is better than your God. It's if you don't accept Jesus uh, and how that is done is usually stipulated, you're banished from God. Uh, So your Jewish friends, uh, your Buddhist friends, your Muslim friends, your secular friends, they're just out of luck. Now, we inhabit kind of a sacred interfaith space here. 
Um, our hosts are both a, a Christian uh, parish, St. Clair's Episcopal Church, and Temple Beth Emmet, a Jewish congregation. If either one of these congregations took a, tri a triumphalist reading of their sacred text, well, Temple Beth Emmet could say, we are the chosen people and you're out of luck unless you leave St. Clair's and come to join us. And St. Clairians could use maybe this verse and so, say, whoever it is, you're worshiping over there, it's not the real God, we've got the real God, capital G. The place would be like a breeding ground for religious conflict and we'd run for the hills and go rent a bowling alley instead where <laughs> things would be a little more peaceful. So um, I didn't see uh, Bill Maher's movie, uh, Religious. Did anyone see Religious? Ooh, yeah, it was, yeah. I, I did, I, the reason I didn't see Religious is because I knew I would agree with too much of it and it would be too painful for me. So my priest friend, uh, Susan Bach, saw it and she said, it is hard to watch. Uh, she quoted Bill Marhar and said, he said at the end, uh, religion must end if humankind is to live, grow up people or die. You know, like you know, the believer part of me wants to say, well, the Soviet Union and Mao's China tried the end religion bit and it didn't work out so well. Then, you know, atheists can be fundamentalists too. You know, Christians don't have the only quarter on that market. But, but still, his point is well taken. Uh, if religion is so good, why does religious conflict seem like our, literally our greatest threat for global survival? Now, um, that said, many people who take the more triumphalist reading are way more loving than their theology. Like my great Aunt Mary. My great Aunt Mary, she was Canadian, so she was extra nice. And she, she, had, uh, she had a workaround around her theology. So when someone died, she always found some reason to think that they had accepted Jesus. So she'd say things like, oh, I sent her a card that said, may, may God grant you the peace of Christ. And later she told me, thank you for that card. It meant so much to me. That was a sure sign. Or sometimes she had to really stretch it like, Maud squeezed my uh, sneeze just before she died and I said, God bless you. And she squeezed my hand. And did anyone else have a great Aunt Mary? Am I the only one with a great Aunt Mary who had a theology on the one hand, but they always had workarounds, the mean part of their theology. Now, I must say that the pluralist readings that I've heard, and pluralism is just a condition or system in which two or more states, groups, principles, or sources of authority can coexist. So it's a, it's a way to make room for people of differing uh, outlooks or belief systems. Um, most of the pluralist readings of this text that I've heard uh, just don't grab me. Probably the most common is the, the delete key one that I just mentioned where you read everything but that, you know, no one can come for the Father except through me part. But there are other versions of the pluralist reading and most of them, I must admit, don't, don't grab me. They're like, it's just like, well, Jesus is just like, he's kind of turned into this just really nice, nice person. And like, heck, I know a lot of nice people already. I don't need more nice people in my life, and I certainly don't need to worship a nice person. And, and so a lot of the pluralist reading don't really, don't really grab me. But I, I, I want to offer one. First of all, you know, Jesus is not 
an evangelical megachurch pastor in Ohio who is loaded with like power and prestige. Um, the person who's speaking these words is a marginalized Jew among Roman occupation forces. He's a Galilean Jew, so he's like a, a country hick, not a member of the Jewish aristocracy. And he's in Jerusalem at this time, which is crawling with much more prominent uh, Jewish leaders. Jesus at this point in time in the story, this is John chapter 14, this is just getting on the way to the crucifixion. Jesus is leading a little sect that is losing members faster than Mitt Romney lost Facebook friends after his loss to Obama in 2012. And the reason I think of that is because my wife loves Barack Obama and she admitted to me that after the election she went to the Mitt Romney Facebook page and she took a certain kind of what's that German phrase schadenfreude schadenfreude like joy in someone else's misfortune to just watch the the numbers of the of the likes you know just shrink on on Romney's page we'd all be like begging for him back at this point in time but that's another story um so when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, it, it absolutely did not have the same sound to the original hearers as, say, that billboard on I-275 when you're going to, you know, going to uh, Detroit Metro Airport and you got to drop someone off at the, you know, the, the um, Delta Terminal and there's that big old billboard that says, I am the life, Jesus. And every time I see that, I cringe. It makes him sound like the narcissist in chief. I'm like, who does that? Who like puts something up there and says, I said that? You know, it just didn't, didn't, didn't strike me like the way it was meant to be sound. So what is the context that gives these words a meaning that we might actually be able to embrace? I want to offer a, I'm giving this a fancy name, uh, a costly grace pluralist reading of this text okay you got that a costly grace pluralist reading that's going to be on the quiz so Jesus is speaking in John 14 on the night or near the night of his betrayal um, eyes wide open he's walking right into a scapegoating event uh, Jerusalem was an anxious city that was racked with internal conflicts. In that condition, communities often look for a person or a group to blame, to project their own anxieties onto an innocent victim, but they declare him guilty. And if the charges stick and, and they spread through the age-old group dynamics of imitation, the target is banished. And the tensions are remarkably relieved and the community returns to equilibrium until the next big buildup uh, of conflict. And this is exactly sociologically what's going on in Jerusalem when Jesus is meeting with his harried little band of followers. And they're during the phase of the scapegoat mechanism when the mechanism is being triggered and anyone at that phase who stands with the scapegoated uh, people or group or individual is in danger of becoming a target themselves. So these disciples are in that position sociologically. Now, um, the words immediately preceding John chapter 14, oh gosh, I wish we were like an old-fashioned church where everyone brought their Bibles because you could, you could see this concretely in the text itself. 
in, in, the, in the run-up to uh, John 14, the immediate verses just before the passage that we're studying, uh, it goes like this. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the crock crows, you will have denied me three times. The, the following here, I don't think is like following Jesus to heaven. It's like literally following Jesus. Like Peter interrupted his following Jesus when the scapegoat me mechanism uh, kicked in. Remember, he went to the, you know, the high court priest courtyard where Jesus was being interrogated and he had a chance to like stand with Jesus, but he demurred, as he said. You know, he, he preferred the warmth of the charcoal fire. It's his saying, yeah, I know, I know the man. So this is really crucial for the context because I think Peter is the main audience for the words that follow, that we're studying. Uh, and the, they're the words that are primarily aimed for Peter and potentially all of us when we are in Peter's bind. So as predicted, as I mentioned, Peter would, would do very shortly what I think most human beings in his position would have done, played it safe, backed off if possible, and save your own neck Prefer the company, company and the companionship and the pleasure of your local peeps if it's threatened by you standing with someone who has gained their displeasure. He chose the warmth of the charcoal fire over the stigma of the scapegoat, even when the scapegoat was someone he dearly loved, his Lord Jesus. So think of Peter is the primary audience for the following words. In my father's house are many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, Peter denied Jesus for his belonging needs. And Jesus is offering like a better community, safe, warm place for him to belong to than this scapegoating mob that is now organizing. So I, I talk with evangelical pastors who are conflicted over uh, the evangelical policies that discriminate against LGBTQ people. Those are the only evangelical pastors I talk to. Everyone else <laughs> avoids me. But they kind of like, they, they come to me and they, you know, they want to be progressive and, and they're always conflicted. They're so conflicted. And I used to try to like help them to see that the Bible statements on same gender sex have nothing to do with the loving gay couples today. And I had so many of these conversations, I would say I got nowhere most of the time. So yet another of these tormented pastors comes to me. is a close family member who's gay. And so he's tormented. He's like, I love my sister, but you know, the Bible says. And there was a time when I would have been like, I would have taken the bait and I would have like engaged in biblical exegesis and interpretation and tried to convince him that my reading was a reasonable reading, blah, blah. And I, I just, I just, I just found myself saying to him, you will not challenge your theology until you are willing to bear the stigma of your sister 
even if it means losing your religious privilege, which, by the way, knowing your denomination, it will. And he just, he, he looked at me like, I think that just ended the conversation. And it did, and it usually does. Um, I didn't say it, but the vast majority of people in that position stay with their group rather than with their sister or their brother or their parent. I know I, I was among them too long. So what is Jesus doing when he speaks these challenging words, I am the way, no one comes to the Father except through me? He's, he's remember, he's taking the risk that if he walks into the trap of scapegoating, which he's he could avoid, but he's not avoiding. He sees it all happening. He takes the risk that if he just goes with it, if he walks into the trap, God will vindicate him in some way, and this will be some kind of victory for scapegoated people. Now, I don't think Jesus actually had this idea like he'd already been to Sunday school and he realized that he rose from the dead three days later and everything was great. I don't think it was that clear to him. I think he just, I think he was, he was a Jewish man. He's, he's, he's steeped in the Hebrew prophets. He sees this theme working out through the scriptures. He's feeling it. He's experiencing it. He's got a relationship with God that's very close and intense. And he just, he believes that there's going to be some vindication for him. And so for Jesus, is that because otherwise it's just like, well, he suffered for a day and Hello, three days later, it's all over and he's great. And he knows it in advance. I mean, people suffer a lot more than a day when they die. They suffer for months when they die. They can't, I mean, you know, uh, the movie, uh, uh, Passion of the Christ. I, I saw that movie by Mel Gibson. I'm like, Jesus didn't suffer that bad. I mean, it was such stylized violence. It was like, you know, it was, it was bad, but it was time limited, and then it was over. I think if he had just known, oh yeah, three days later, I'm going to be fine, I, I don't think his act would have been nearly as meaningful or courageous. I think he's taking a, almost like a blind leap across a deep and a wide chasm, and he, but he, he feels called to strike a blow against this scapegoat mechanism. When he says a few verses later, I am the way, I think this is the way he's talking about. When he says, no one comes to the Father except through me, that word through, he's using passageway language. It's like that old movie, oh please, somebody be old enough to have seen The Great Escape. Anybody, thank you, yes, The Great Escape. It's, it's an awesome movie of the Allied forces, you know, their POWs in, in the German prison camp, and they're building a tunnel to freedom, and they're, they're like all engineers or Americans. They like, figure things out, and they, you know, use these duct tape and everything to hide the stuff, and it's just awesome. They're building this tunnel to freedom, and then the night comes when they've got to you know, start leaving. And once they start leaving, you know, they're going to notice it. So you, you, you got to do it all in the nighttime. And always, uh, there's a bunch of movies like this, always there's the claustrophobic guy, right? <laughs> and they uh, get into that tunnel, oh, ah, no way. And, and they say, there's no other way but through it. I see, I see through in that, 
in that sense. Jesus is like digging a tunnel. He's forging a path that, that will only change the world if people follow it. What Jesus is doing only has impact in the world if he has followers. If people see what he's doing, he's doing are inspired by what he's doing and follow the path that he's taking. We cannot know the Father who is leading him unless we take this path too. I think that's just like a, it's like a sociological fact. I don't think here Father means like God in some abstract philosophical sense. This is not a discourse like Jesus' discourse on his understanding of God in the context of world religion. He's, he's like in it now with his own people. Th th that word father for Jesus, he also used the term Abba Father, which is like dear father. That word more than any other word describes this, what you'd say the spirituality of Jesus. That means his experience of the divine. So from the time of his baptism in the Jordan um, at the hands of John the Baptist and probably long before that, Jesus um, curated or had an experience of God that was so intimate, that was so tender, that was so intense at times that he didn't fear his own vulnerability as a human being. In fact, he had the freedom because he was pickled in this sense of this love of this divine being that he felt close to. He could just embrace, hey, we're, we're all just like little children. We're vulnerable, but we're in the hands of God and it's going to be okay. Jesus, by the way, could easily have used the term mother if the culture of the time wasn't so patriarchal. Jesus used actually many uh, mother images for God uh, in the Gospels. So through this experience, he came to believe that he was called to stand with vulnerable, marginalized people. He called them the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Often people would, he'd, he'd look at the fields right for harvest and he'd say, look, look at the people. They're like, they're like, they're like sheep who are harassed. And they got no shepherd. He was looking at the marginalized people and his image for them was they were like sheep. Like, like the lambs before their shearer are dumb or silent. Sheep are like, they're just gathered and they're, you know, they're treated real nice for a period of time and then they're slaughtered. And so sheep are like, they're, they're dumb and they're vulnerable and the powers that are arrayed against them are way beyond them. And this is how he saw it the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and he felt called to, in a sense, share their fate and, and, and lead them to a better, a better place through God's vindication. Um, he was so trusting in this experience of God that he was willing, literally, to let it play out. He was willing to die and he, in, in, in the hope that God would somehow make it right. And then he, and then, and then by extension, they would be vindicated by God. And that would like break the back, sociologically speaking, of this mechanism. So I, th I think this reading that I'm winding up to is confirmed eight verses later when Jesus introduces for the first time in the Gospel of John his uh, unique name for the Holy Spirit. 
many names for the Holy Spirit throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, Jesus had like, I don't want to say a pet name, that doesn't convey it, but like he had his own distinct name. Maybe think of it as a nickname for the Holy Spirit, and it was in Greek, paraclete, not parakeet, paraclete, and it means advocate. It's translated advocate, it's, but it's like advocate for the defense, one who stands uh, as an advocate to defend people who are innocent. I have said these things to you while I'm still with you, but the advocate, that's paraclete, the one who speaks in our defense, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all I said to you. So I'm sure I told the story of Tom and Eddie um, recently. I put it in a manuscript that we're working on. I was trying to remember if I used it. I think I might have used it on Easter. I'm going to tell it again because it's a good story. And there's no story that better illustrates uh, Jesus' name for the Holy Spirit than this story. Uh, Tom and Eddie are an older gay couple who came to my wife uh, Julia's church a, uh, a few years back. Um, and Eddie is like a devout Roman Catholic, but Tom has uh, stopped any religious affiliation as a young man. I think as a 19, 20-year-old, he was studying to be a preacher when he, in, like in the, in the South, uh, when he heard his first sermon condemning homosexuality, and he was like, oh, oh, that's me. And well, there's no way I can be a preacher. And there's no room for God uh, for, for a person like me. And he just, you know, he just ditched any connection with God. Meanwhile, Tom and Eddie lived a conventional married life in secret, which is the only safe way for them to do, do so when they, were, when, when they were doing this. They, they lived in a very, what had become a very conservative neighborhood in Dearborn. And um, Eddie told me that he actually, for a couple of years, didn't leave the house unless he absolutely had to. Uh, he was so terrified of being found out. They were known as like roommates, but you know. They raised two grandchildren whose parents couldn't raise them for other reasons. So Julie and I are having dinner with Tom and Eddie after Tom is home from the hospital after having cancer surgery that removed his leg. Eddie is doting over Tom, taking care of Tom. So I, I asked Tom his story of returning uh, to faith since, since he started going to Julia's church because that was a big turning point for him. And I'm, you know, I like spiritual experience, so I'm asking him, like, I'm like a spiritual director, you know, I'm saying, like, what was the internal experience that triggered you, looking back, to give God another try? Like, what was happening inside of you that said, maybe I should give God another try. And he, he paused. He said, I think I realize that I'm not so bad. I think I realize I'm not so bad. And then I came back to God. <laughs> I know this is not a standard evangelical conversion story, right? The standard one is like, oh, I realized, I thought I was a pretty good person, and then I realized how bad I was, and then I, and I went crawling on my knees to God. But Eddie had a totally different story. And this story illustrates the work of the Spirit as paraclete, 
in order to function, the scapegoat mechanism that Jesus is exposing has to assume the guilt of the targeted people. The paraclete, the advocate, the spirit of truth coming to, into the world through what Jesus is doing, is enacting, is the spirit who says, uh-uh, uh-uh, not guilty. These people are innocent. God is with them. You want to be with God? Stand with them. That's a powerful thing that Jesus is enacting there. Remember, the spirit who is opposed to the Holy Spirit in the gospel is a spirit that Jesus called Hasatan, the Satan. And that just means literally, it doesn't have like a capital S. It's just Hasatan, it means the accuser. The accuser. Hello, are you putting this together in your minds? Accusations against people they want, that, that other people want to blame for all their problems that spread through the group and organize around that person. Sure, they're guilty of something, but they're usually not guilty of that. That's scapegoating, and it depends on the spirit of accusation getting released. When, when it said that Satan entered Judas, I think it was like Judas, just he, he just got caught up in that. And like he became a vessel for the accusation. It happens to all of us all the time. Uh, just watch the President of the United States at his rallies and on his Twitter feed. He's putting on a clinic. It's a clinic, a clinic on scapegoating. So there is an edge to this saying of Jesus. No one comes to the Father through me. I am the way. But, but think of it as Jesus as an equal opportunity offender, at least, you know. I had this friend, a white friend, he taught uh, a public school in the city of Detroit and his school was al almost all black and one time, I think it was junior high, one time a kid said, no, Mr. Taylor hates us kids. And another kid uh, stood up in Mr. Taylor's defense, and, Mr. Taylor, uh, and he said, he hates us kids because we're, we're black. And, and his, his uh, other student stands up and says, Mr. Taylor doesn't hate us because we're black, he hates all kids. <laughs> Like, and that was like, yeah, I hate all kids. Oh, come on. <laughs> Jesus is sometimes, when he's an offender, he's an equal opportunity offender. And so, listen to this point. I sharpened it. Okay, I sharpened it. A Muslim, a Jew, a Hindu, a Sikh, an atheist, Bill Maher, Standing with the scapegoats of our time is closer to the God Jesus is revealing here than the Christians who stand idly by while it happens under their pious noses. I put my pencil in the sharper for that one and I wrote it out. Quiet reflection time. Um... So the disciples who heard Jesus saying these things were in a very threatened, um, alarmed state. Jesus was drawing negative attention to himself. Oh, I need that. Um, and by association, he was drawing that negative attention uh, to them. Bigger things were unfolding around them than they could understand while it was happening. Ever have that feeling? Um, they were very aware that there were powerful forces outside their control that were, I don't know, growling like a pack of feral dogs outside their door. And his message in the middle of that 
was essentially the emotion of the message was stay close follow me it will all work out fine just stay close follow me it's all going to work out fine so that feeling of threat is like we can all identify with that I think that's just part of the human condition right sometimes we feel that threat acutely sometimes we think it's irrational but we still feel it sometimes we think oh it's quite rational and we feel it sometimes we're so it's so rational that we don't let ourselves feel it <laughs> sometimes it's just like hiding in the closet and we know it's there and it might make an appearance one time and just the knowing it's in the closet makes us nervous even when things are going great right that feeling of threat so for our meditation, I just want to walk us through um, Psalm 23, which is made for that. It's, it's, uh, Jesus' teaching is in the stream of Psalm 23. Um, uh, this psalm means a lot to me because my dad was a 19-year-old tech sergeant in World War II, and he had a radio pack on his back, which made him a target. And um, he was in the worst mortar shelling up to date uh, of World War II uh, on November 11th, 1944. And he was running through this field of mortar fire and like a, 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 a cow blew up next to him, hit by a mortar shell. He's running over like a stream. And my dad had grown up in the Episcopal Church, but he left it behind. And he wasn't, you know, a devout Episcopalian at this time. And in the middle of that mayhem, he had apparently memorized Psalm 23 and he didn't know it and he just yelled it out. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet water. He just went through Psalm 23 out loud and then he falls next to a tree and a mortar shell uh, hits right next to him, gives him the get out of the war, you know, <laughs> injury that that's, uh, probably saved his life. And, the, and two guys next to him are killed and the mortar shell went through his back and out the front of his helmet. And on his deathbed, my sister is, is next to him on his deathbed. He's having an agonizing death. You know, they say the way you live your life is sometimes the way you die. And he, Glenn Wilson, he struggled. He struggled with his life, you know. And when he, he came to die, he wasn't, he didn't make it easy on people necessarily. And he was in that struggling phase. And my sister Nancy was like, oh, this is exhausting. She goes into the living room. She pulls out uh, the Bible and she reads Psalm 23 just quietly to herself. She comes back in. My dad has one of these like lucid moments. And he just looks at her. He says like, there, there. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and we're doing it today together, aren't we, honey? Um, we don't fear any evil. It's like, uh, what I mean to say to you is this is a powerful psalm that we're going to meditate on, okay? So what I suggest that you do is just get yourself uh, relaxed, take a moment, maybe focus on your breathing, close your, close your eyes. I'm going to read this psalm to, to you meditatively, in three parts and just let you pause and absorb it to um, comfort and calm yourself in as much as you feel threatened by anything going on in your life at this time. The opening scene is this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. 
It always starts with, okay, actually we're safe right now, aren't we? And that's true. We're, we're in this room together. We're safe right now. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. I just take those words in. And now there's like a second section of the psalm and it's like after the calming, it's like, well, yeah, we always have to get up and we have to go somewhere, right? So we have to go to work tomorrow or this afternoon or we're going home to our family and maybe it's some family tension that we're dreading when we go home or whatever. We, we, you know, life goes back and forth between feeling safe and relaxed and being in a situation where we're, the, the threat is, is triggered. And this is that second section. He leads me in right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You might just own those words, say them over and over for a little bit. I fear no evil, for you are with me. I fear no evil, for you are with me. Sit with that for a moment. And then this last section is God with us in the face of the threat, when the threat is right around us. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Just stick with that. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my foes. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. That's that right there. That's the work of the paraclete. Lifting you up. And you're not innocent of that stuff that is being charged against you. Those voices of accusation that you may have internalized. It, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set a table for you even in the presence of your foes and they're going to see I'm with you. I'm going to anoint your head with oil. Um, your cup is going to overflow. Don't worry, I'm with you in the midst of the threat, in the midst of the foes. Just take that in, make it your own. Amen.